our first guest. Now, I have often, sh- sh- I have often been accused of running like a girl, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and there certainly isn't, according to our, our, our first guest, Alexandra Hemsley, who's going to read tonight for the very first time from her new memoir. Alexandra is the books editor for Elle and the Claudia Winkleman Art Show on Radio 2, as well as all sorts of other lovely, clever things. What she is not, however, is a natural runner. Several marathons and thousands of miles later, she has worked out how to finish and perhaps, more importantly, how to start and what it all means culturally, politically and personally. This is what we really talk about when we talk about running. Welcome, Alexandra Hemsley. Talking above the foam, is that that everyone can... Well, thank you, Sylvia. Yes? A <laughs> little bit closer, okay. Um, right. I'm going to read you the prologue from my book and all that you need to know about it. Well, there are two things you need to know about it. One is that this is not a book about my athletic endeavour and its majesty. It is a book <laughs> about me being slightly rubbish at running and how I hope that might motivate people to sort of just enjoy it. I'm not interested in people who won't run. I'm only interested in people who say that they can't because they can, because I can. The second thing you need to know about this prologue is that almost everyone mentioned in it is in the room tonight. So I will do my very best not to go the full paltro. (laughs) Help me. Help you. (laughs) Okay. Prologue. The secret that all runners keep is that they don't do it for their bodies, but for their minds. Slim legs can get boring, but a clear mind never does. The tight glutes, the xylophone abs, the satisfaction of knowing you can have an extra donut in front of the telly. These are not the point of running, but the byproduct. The real gold at the end of the rainbow is grasping that you can leave the house almost trembling with trepidation about what lies ahead, and that if you can just keep yourself going, a few minutes, a few lampposts, a few kilometres at a time, you will not just be improving your running, but how you live your life. The, angers, the moments of anger or desolation that runners experience at desperate points of a lengthy run are basic physiological reactions to the situation. Once you've accepted what they are, you've learnt to conquer them, and you'll begin to believe that anything is possible. A good run, when you least want to leave the house, has a magical ability to unravel a knotty problem that's been vexing you for days, without you really understanding how, or it can prompt a depth of emotion you never dreamt you were capable of. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of September last year, I went, I went to the cinema in London to watch Ryan Gosling in Drive. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I recommend it. But remember, I saw him first. It's hard for me to be distracted when I'm in the beam of the Gosling. So when my phone went as I entered the cinema, I only answered because it was my sister's due date for her first baby, and I could see that it was my mother calling. But instead of being told that my sister had been admitted to hospital, I was told that her husband, a healthy, active 35-year-old, was lying on a ward. His heart rate was dangerously elevated, and no one knew why. My mother told me to go into the film, as there was nothing any of us could do until he'd been seen by a specialist, but asked me to keep my mobile on in case my sister needed me. 
I entered the cinema in a semi-trance, my blood icy in my veins. I sat with my phone in my hand, hypnotised by Gosling, yet aware of a constant ticker tape of anxiety scrolling across my mind. What was happening in the hospital a few miles away? I didn't understand. I texted my father throughout the film, checking to see if there were any updates. No news yet. I left the cinema and telephoned St George's Hospital. I knew that the situation was not good when I was put directly through to my sister within seconds. She was in tears and asked me to come immediately. What followed was one of the most extraordinary 48 hours in all of our lives. I met my sister, we headed home, I made her some toast and some tea, helped her in and out of the bath and put her to bed. There was no sign of their baby, but nor was there any sign of her husband, who remained attached to myriad mysterious hospital wires. The next morning I accompanied my sister to the midwife, then to the hospital to see her husband. I looked away when he told her he was going into emergency heart surgery in a matter of hours. I held my breath when I heard him ask the surgeon what the alternative was. I did not breathe out when the reply came, there is none. Your condition is very rare and fatal if not treated. My sister was advised to go home and rest while the surgery took place and that the procedure would take two to three hours. Resting was easier said than done. It took her ten minutes to get her upstairs, racked as she was with sobs of despair. I went downstairs and made three dishes of lasagna, thinking how I wish I had my trainers. I was still wearing the same outfit I'd left for the cinema in the previous day. Four hours later, we had heard nothing. My sister sat at the kitchen table and pressed redial for 30 minutes. Eventually, we were told we could go and visit. Amazingly... Her husband was fine, his condition entirely cured by pioneering keyhole surgery. The next morning, my sister went into labour and had a beautiful, healthy baby boy, Louie. <laughs> a week later, I ran the Royal Parks Half Marathon in London. There'd been a point when I'd wondered if I'd be able to make it at all, but in the end, it seemed like the only sensible thing to do. The previous week had been spent in a flurry of emails and phone calls recounting the story of the extraordinary turn of events again and again. I visited the family, I visited my friends, I visited everyone I loved and could reach. I wanted to hug them all, and at every visit I told the story over and over until it was ragged, worn away by retelling, until it started to seem like some plotline from a soap opera I was summarising for a fellow viewer on Twitter. It was as if it hadn't happened to me. I was nervous the morning of the run, as I always am when I do a big public event alone. Had I forgotten something? Who would get me home to Brighton if I fell? Would this finally be the race where I wet myself in front of a full crowd of onlookers? <laughs> the usual worries. Race aside, I felt happy and relaxed after a week in the company of those I loved, digesting the dramatic but ultimately happy news. As I crossed the starting line, I felt a little emotional at how beautiful London looked that day. It had been a bizarre year for weather, and while there had been rain that morning, there was now a gorgeously crisp autumn sky, and the leaves in Hyde Park were exquisite. I felt a little lump in my throat as we left the park and headed out along the Mall, then towards the river. We crossed at Waterloo Bridge and then began to run back. That was when it happened. The tears. Initially, I thought it was just a tiny eye leak, the kind you get after a moving political speech or a great novel or the last half hour of Children in Need. You know, if you've had the right amount of whiskey and some good company. A moment in passing. 
but I was wrong. The tears that could initially be disguised as eyes streaming from the cold soon turned into heaving sobs. The first one appeared as a sort of half-gulp, half-yelp. The second one was an identifiable gasp. Then, five miles into a half-marathon, I was off, proper, full-blown crying. At first, I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I simply wasn't sad. In fact, I was very happy. The news was all good, wasn't it? Yet it seemed that after almost a fortnight of coping, my body and mind suddenly decided to unburden at mile five in the anonymity of a crowd. Only I wasn't anonymous. I was wearing a top bearing my nickname, Hemo, in eight-inch letters. <laughs> By the time I'd realised this, a thousand feelings per second had started to course through me as if I was some sort of magical emotion kaleidoscope. Every other second came a fresh sensation. I hadn't let myself feel in front of my sister, the surgeons, or anyone in the hospital. It was a tidal wave of tears. Before I knew it, my sobs were almost uncontrollable, to the point where the steady rhythm of my feet on the pavement had become the only thing stopping me from losing it altogether. I don't know how I managed to keep running, yet it was all that I could do. The memories of the previous ten days flashed before me. My hand around my mobile in that dark cinema as I waited for news. My sister's hand as she signed the consent form for her husband's surgery. My brother-in-law's hand as he stroked her bump. The smell of the antiseptic in the hospital. The smell of the food I made while my sister slept. The smell of my newborn nephew's head. Flashes of those conversations I'd been having for days on end until they lost all meaning to me, flooded back into my consciousness. What, he could have died? What, the baby was born the next day? What, you're still going to run at the weekend? Of course I still ran, because it was only through running that I was able to process how traumatic those few days had been. Except, of course, the spectators along the route that day didn't really know the reason for my sobs. They just saw a runner in distress and cheered me on. Which, if I'm honest, only made things worse. <laughs> because... With every step, my heart seemed to be swelling, expanding to make room for this newly realised love I felt for my brother-in-law, my new nephew and the friends who had supported us all. There simply wasn't space to love the sweet faces of the children who'd come out to support a dad or a sibling and found themselves cheering me along too. Was there? So their kindness was converted into more grinning tears as I gulped and tried to smile back and explain, Oh no, don't worry, it's fine, it's just that... And then I was past them. Well done, Hemo, they shrieked back. And that just made me cry more. <laughs> Calm down. You're embarrassing yourself now. You need to get your heart rate down if you're going to carry on, I told myself, which only prompted further tears at the very thought of hearts. Hearts are so amazing. Once again, I was lost in emotion at the wonder of life itself. I don't remember the last couple of miles until I reached the final straight. I saw the finish line, and suddenly I felt a strength I didn't know I had. Admittedly, I had not run exceptionally fast, given my busy schedule of weeping. But suddenly I felt more powerful than ever before. My brother-in-law had survived. My sister had survived. We'd all survived. So I sprinted. I felt myself speed up until I could see that I was overtaking the people around me. I left them behind, running faster than I ever had. Slowly I felt my face begin to tingle, and then my hands... <laughs> As I came within metres of the finish line, I wondered if I was going to make it at all. But I did, straight into the arms of a St John's ambulance worker who'd seen me coming. <laughs> he tilted my head forward over my knees to steady my breathing, which was now hysterical. 
I thanked him through my weird, gulpy gasps and took the water he gave me with relief. Moments later, my brother appeared and bought me a sausage in a bun. It was the best sausage in a bun I've ever known, and they're always good. On the train home, I emailed my friends the story of what had happened, expecting to be told I was quite mad. But they understood. They understood it all. That day in October was the day that taught me most about why I run. Once you've experienced the delicious realisation that you can carry on when you're quite sure you're about to die of tears in a crowd of thousands, you've taught yourself a skill that's applicable to all of life. It turns out that sometimes, to survive, you just have to keep going. run I can I can I I just don't Um, you talked about um, you talk about in the book about being someone who who lived outside of sport Um, and I want to talk about about that kind of the beginning I'm gonna stop trying to use the running metaphor so the beginning um, of of your journey can't stop it the metaphor's bad (laughs) how did you go from being a person who was outside sport to being a person who's who's doing that um, well, I think I'm quite, I'm quite naturally clumsy, and at school, the games that you usually play are kind of quite hand-eye coordination-based, and they weren't really for me. <laughs> and then I didn't really get gyms, and it was just all quite intimidating. And I think, but you know, I accept responsibility for the fact that there's a massive part of me that had a preconceived idea of what a sporty person did and what was valid as sport. Um, and I just thought, well, that's not me, so I'll go and sit over here. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, books and the yeah, world of I the was, mind Yeah, I was the, the, the book one in the corner, and everyone else did, like, you know, ooh, I'm doing lacrosse, I'm doing netball. And I was like, okay, I'm but doing reading. This, this is, I mean, on the, on the, on the surface, on the cover, it's, um, it's like a memoir about doing, but it's not actually. It's a, it is a memoir about, about being it, because when you're running, you... you you see a different side to yourself, don't you? And you yeah. see the world differently. Let's talk yeah. about those two things one at, one at a time. Well, I think the thing with running was I sort of wanted to do the London Marathon, and then I stopped. I did, I did the London Marathon. I proved that I could do it, and then I stopped for two years. And then everything changed when I did the London Marathon again with a friend for a purpose, to raise money and to help someone who was going through grief. And that was when I realised that running... Is it was less about me and like, oh, I can run a London Marathon, guys, and you thought I was just into reading. It was more kind of, I realised that you can help people and people do it for reasons outside of themselves. But, I, mean, we, um, I mean, we all get those emails, though, from people saying, yeah, help they're me, very they're annoying. kind of begging bowl emails. Yeah. How do you sort of avoid, avoid that, or did you feel you were part of that? Well, I think there's two kinds of people that do a marathon and for charity, and so, for some people, it's it's they fu- they get you kind of go through a lottery and you try to find the place that you can get so that you can do this bucket list thing, and you just you know you you get you get your mates in the city to pay you however much and you raise some money and that's great for the charity and that's great that you get to do your bucket list thing and that's not dishonourable in itself, but I think a lot of people and you re- you don't really see this till you either spectate or take part are literally exorcising grief from themselves because they're raising money for a charity that means a huge amount to them. They are not athletes. These are the people that train and discover stuff about themselves or 
um, kind of train just to, because they feel a sense of sort of duty to the charity because it, it means a lot to them. And that, you know, it's not just marathons. People do 10Ks for that, and that's still valid. But I think that's to me that's where running becomes really interesting is those people who who use a physical exercise, like, exercise rather than using exercise, yeah. um, to to get something beyond. The physical from it. So in that, in, in, in the race that you describe, in the run rather, you, you describe obviously there's been an intensely emotional experience that you've that you've had, and I'm interested to they're see fine. how, how the, fine. the family are all fine. They're all fine. No, no, some tears, small tears. Um, and you know how how you know how how what what the emotional journey is on on everyone. Is there a, is there a reason for doing it, or do you yeah, just, well you just set out and you just find yourself? Your, your mind drift is that a kind of well, zen that, exercise? The prologue was an exceptional example. I think I'd been the coping one. It wasn't my drama. Yeah. And I'd done a lot of sort of explaining and taking a lot, fielding a lot of calls and doing a lot of sort of ex- sort of doing the talking for other people. And I'd never really thought about what had happened to me until I did I, the kind of running. And there's a sort of there's a very specific sort of physiological thing that happens when you've done a run or when you're doing a run where you kind of the physical aspect of what's happening sort of takes over and it and you sort of realize that of course the pain that you were were worried about feeling of course of course you feel pain you've been running for two hours like you would be in a real trouble if your knees didn't start to hurt after a bit like Mm. your bottoms of your feet have been slamming on pavement or whatever and you sort of accept what is a physical response to something the same as you accept, well, of course I'm crying. My sister's husband nearly just died and she just had a baby. I would have cried if one of those things had happened mm-hmm. within the week. Um, so you, you talk also in the book about how you, your gaze shifts as a woman from thinking about yourself and how you look um, and, and whether or not you're, you're feeling fat or whether or not you're feeling like you good in a, look good in an outfit to how people look at, how, how you look out to the world and, yeah. that, that, and, and the That's, kind of shifting of that gaze. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting feminist point. It's we'll come on to the feminist history of running in a few minutes. But um, <laughs> just telling you where you're going. Well, there's no directions. <laughs> no, that's, to me, that's one of the most unexpected and important things is that most women, and men not so much, but women tell me they don't want to or can't run because of how they will look during it. And the most sort of magnificent shift that happens is, is that, that mainly a point about boobs? No. Wobbling, like no. anxieties. No. No. Okay. no. I would have thought there would have been some anxiety about that. It. That is part of the issue. That is definitely that a lot of people, but there are many flat-chested people who are strong, proud, independent women who just don't like having a puce face or okay. their hair going weird or running like a girl with their legs kicking out the back and boys laughing at them in the park. Those are all understandable anxieties but what happens if you run long enough and you you become more interested in what you're doing rather than what you look like and then in what you're seeing so mm-hmm. you see people doing amazing things i mean you have see, you see funny things you see like dogs shagging or whatever on the seafront or you know a crazy person on rollerblades that will make you laugh and make for a good tweet later but you see people kind of exceeding their expectations almost on every run you do like you go to a park run and you'll see like someone in their 70s finish 20 minutes after everyone else and everyone in hove applauding them or you'll see someone kind of you know barely stagger across the finish line of a marathon mm. and it's it's so it's so exciting when you realize that you care so much more about your gaze going that way than the gaze is coming that way because you really do i mean I, 
I, you know, I, I try to play ball and wear a proper bar and, you know, put, like, eyelashes on or have highlights before a marathon. But I, I just, I just want to, I just want to, like, get to the end, really. I don't care. Without shaying yourself, which is the other, the other... The, yes. the, 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 the betrayal, the betrayal, is it the, I can't remember the exact line from the book, but it's about roadside embarrassment, I think, is how you describe yeah. it. Not involving the REC. Yeah. Um, so, so talk to me a, a bit about the, the, the feminist history, which I didn't actually, I mean, I just assumed that women had always been able to run marathons and therefore were always allowed to run marathons. Well, you were wrong, all, I know, damn I, was you. All, I did learn. It just comes in many forms. <laughs> um, no, to me, it, it was incredibly important with... It was a massive, massive motiva motivating factor in writing the book was when I discovered this sort of extraordinary kind of history of feminist running that it, as recently as the 1960s, women were not allowed to take part in public runs. The marathon was not an Olympic sport so for women. So when you say they weren't allowed, were they actually physically tied yes. away, told they yeah, weren't? Yeah, they they people would, were taken off the course. Um, and they weren't allowed to run. They weren't, then they would sort of remove from the course. They were told their uterus would fall out. They were told, see, in all honesty, there's this extraordinary Catherine Switzer, um, Joan Benoit Samuelson. The, the, Olymp the, Olympic, the marathon was not accepted as an Olympic sport for women until 1984 for health, health reasons. Oh, that is just shocking. It's mad because it's so good for you and, uh, you know, obviously within reason, don't yeah. be weird about it. But um, yeah. it, it's, it's just extraordinary to me. And, and so many women, people, but specifically women, don't run because of, you know, sort of anxieties around it or whatever, or feeling mm. they're not good enough. And to me, one of the biggest motivating factors in going for a run is the simple thought that at some point people like me weren't allowed to. I mean, Louis, God bless him, is of an age where the most attractive way, the, the, the quickest way to make something look attractive is to tell him that it's not allowed. And I feel like that about those women with running. Like, the idea that, no, <laughs> is extraordinary to me. Like, I, of course, that makes me want to run ten times more. Um, and now, this is, this is your second memoir, uh, but your seventh book? Seventh book, Seventh yeah. book. Um, and one of the... You're, you're not responsible for any of the terrible books that we talked about earlier, the ghostwriting memoirs, but ghostwriting is one of the other things that you do, and I wonder what it was like for you writing a, an honest, very honest um, uh, piece of writing about yourself um, instead of you know, somebody else. Was it hard for you to get back, back into that mode of of writing about yourself in the first person, or was it... No, I really enjoyed it, because this was so personal, and there's quite a lot of description about me and my own body, and there was a point of last spring where I was, like... I was literally bored of my own thighs. Like, I'd run out of ways <laughs> to describe them. And it was so lovely, because then I sort of stopped and did a different project in between, where I had to ask loads and loads and loads and loads of questions of someone else, and sort of prod away and prod away until I'd got sort of what I needed from them. And it, I found it incredibly, sort of very satisfying and refreshing to then turn that line of questioning back on myself. I think mm. it helped quite a lot. Um, how, d how was it tonight, just, just briefly reading it in front of, your, in front of your family who were in the book, who, who <laughs> haven't seen the book? Um, it, was, it was lovely. I, I've, I've been significantly more mindful with this book than I was with X in the City about the effect that it has on other people and myself. I mean, my, the what first did you learn, do you think, between those first and two books? Well, the, the, let's talk a, briefly about what your first book's about. Well, the first book was X in the City was about getting dumped. It was a sort of comedy memoir about getting dumped that sort of, I, in my sort of optimistic 
myself thought that if I just tell all these stories and I make them really funny, it will cheer everyone else up, and I'll have just put a nice narrative on my 20s, and then, you know, it'll be my 30s, and they'll be like a prince, and everything will be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that isn't what happened. What happened was that it came out the week that my sister got married, and she got married abroad, so it was displayed quite prominently in all of the airports. Um, so it, it sort of opened me up to several months of people going, oh my god, I can't believe how awful that's all been for you, oh my god, a nightmare. And then also people feeling, you, if you put that stuff in a book, you've given them license to have an opinion on it, and mm. mercifully it was before Twitter, but people for a long time there found was, it uh, okay before to... Twitter, there were books yeah, before I know. Twitter, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I haven't said anything in this book that I don't feel I could cope with a question from a stranger who slightly scares me. Speaking of that, Sylvia. <laughs> I've worked out for a long time for this. Hello, I have many questions, but my main one is this. I read the L piece in which you said that working hard is good for you. Yes. You made a somewhat scathing comment about charity. And then I read the red piece in which you said you were running a marathon for your friend. Yes. I didn't run it for my friend, I ran it with my friend. Yes. I, yeah. Was that the shift that kind of made you think, fuck this shit, I'm going to start running? So, so the, the question... For I don't know didn't, what, question, what specifically did I say in the L piece? Because that was written after... What, that was written when I'd done the marathon with Julia, so I can't imagine I was... I think, the que- I think what the question's driving at okay. is that, 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 that you wrote a piece of, in L about the value of working, very very good piece about, of, of working hard, and, it, and I guess that I suppose that, that it's sort of part of who you are, that, that part, the effort cup winning part of you who wants to kind of cross the line, not yeah. fast, not third, not, but, you know, but, but actually to have done something, I suppose, a sense of completion. Have you ever not finished a run? No. Never? No, no, actually I haven't. I mean, I've kind of stopped and walked and sort of been to the loo and stuff. But. Well, I don't want to talk anymore about you going to the loo. Um, I'll take more questions from the gentleman there, who I can't see. Yes, go ahead. You, oh, Mr. Swindon. Hello. Hello, Mr. It's a lovely man who comes from Swindon. I know a super saver real ticket, and he goes to Matin in the afternoon. Round of applause for that gentleman. We love him. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> and he's always nice and early. Yes, go. After a marathon. So the, yeah. the question for those who can't hear it is, is how, how do you cope after a big event like that, a big high? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't cope with it terribly well, actually. <laughs> um, to begin with, I was very... Well, the first London Marathon that I did, I just stopped entirely for a year and a half and thought I'd never do it again. The second one, I kind of signed up to some events, and that one of which was the Royal Parks that I just talked about. And then I... Um, sort of uh, then I had uh, I was writing the book and I had sort of sent this snazzy proposal off to what became my publishers and I um slyly during the course of last year just completely went off running <laughs> and I had to add a chapter about just really hating it because I sort of did I had exactly that like I'd sort of done three marathons and I'd sort of done a run in the night time and I'd done a run when I cried and I suddenly re- was consumed with the feeling of well What's the fucking point? Um, but I worked through that, and we're all you know, <laughs> looking well, forward to publication. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that question from Claire. Claire. Um, as someone who can vouch for the fact that you were historically 
the, the question for those who didn't hear it is, is from somebody who can vouch that, um, that Alex was very non-sporty um, in the earlier part of her life. Um, and what, what is it that, that then that drives you forward? And is it a race? What's the, is there something competitive going Well, the on thing there? I like about How Amer- do you win Amer- or lose Amer- or marathon? You can't, you never, I mean, you, I mean you, my dear friends at Nike would tell me <laughs> that of course you can if you're Paula Radcliffe, but you... You're never going to win a marathon, so you your your goal is always kind of just arbitrary. And if you get to do a five-hour marathon or a four-hour marathon or a three-hour marathon, all that you will do at the end is then shift the goal. Um, so really, all you can ever do is really be competing against yourself. I mean, this is obviously if you're not looking to be professional, which I am not. <laughs> that seems like a very good place to leave it. Thank you very much, Alexandra Hammersley. Yeah.